So you're the acting director of the FBI. You've been with the Bureau for 20 years. You've investigated mobsters and international terrorists. You oversaw the arrest of one of the key suspects in the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. You get your first meeting with the president of the United States, who had just fired your boss because he wouldn't pledge his loyalty. And what does he ask you? Who did you vote for? Think about that. Think about what that means to have a president who would ask such a question. What do you say back to him? And what does that tell you about the president and his attitude towards our law enforcement agencies and more broadly about the administration of justice? We'll discuss that and much more on today's edition of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. So, Mike, this has been an incredibly busy week on the Russia front. President has said just before flying off to Davos that he wants to testify under oath before Special Counsel Robert Mueller, although, of course, his lawyer says there are still details to work out, so we'll see. Uh, we learned that Attorney General Jeff Sessions was recently interviewed by Mueller, the House Republicans are on a campaign to release a memo um, Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes has prepared that they say shows shocking abuses by the FBI and the Justice Department and, and also launched a, a, a Twitter hashtag campaign called Release the Memo, pushed by, among others, Donald Trump Jr. and Russian bots, presumably controlled by Russian intelligence services. But let's come back to the question that you raised at the top of the show. Uh, uh, President Trump asks the man who was at the who was at the time the top official at the FBI, Andrew McCabe, who he voted for, and and so why does that matter? Um, joining us for the conversation is someone who's thought a lot about these kinds of issues and all things Russia. Matt Miller, the former director of public affairs at the Obama Justice Department. Hey, Matt, um, it's Mike here, and I want to start out by asking you uh, a question: um, Who'd you vote for? Uh, I don't think anyone that follows me on Twitter or has ever seen me on TV has any, much doubt about that question. Uh, I probably voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> probably. Uh, however, but, yes. however, if yeah. I were if I were working at the FBI or the Justice Department and someone from the White House asked me that question, uh, I'd be pretty appalled. Yeah. I, so let's let's explore that a little bit because it did strike me as a pretty extraordinary question uh, to be asking uh, the guy who's running the FBI. What what do you make of it? What does it tell you? And why would you be appalled were you to be asked such a question? So if the, the, here's the thing. The Justice Department is supposed to operate free from any taint of politics, free from any political pressure. They're supposed to, you know, um, make their decisions based just on the facts, not on the law. And so when you ask a question like that, inherent in it is the idea or the, the concept that, you know, it's important who you voted for because it determines how you're going to act. And it, that, that makes it a, a, a kind of 
astonishing question to ask in any context, but you also have to think about the context in which the president asked McCabe this question. Andrew McKay was there because Jim Comey had just been fired, and the president was interviewing him to be the acting director of the FBI. And potentially, I don't know if McCabe knew this at this time, but potentially he was a candidate for full-time permanent director of the FBI. And, of course, McCabe came back later and interviewed again with the president for full-time director. So asking him that question in that context, I think it's the president's way of saying – I want to know what your politics are. I want to know if you're going to be loyal to me. I want to know if you're going to have my back rather than, you know, interpret, you know, call balls and strikes like you see them. Very similar to the kind of questions he was asking Jim Comey. But this sort of gets into, you know, the broader issues here, because clearly the president and his defenders in the House of Representatives feel that um, there was a mindset on the part of people in the FBI and the intelligence community to get him. Um, that this was a, a politically driven um, investigation from the get-go. And um, he doesn't want to have somebody running his FBI, he's the president, who is part of that um, cabal, as you were. And let's remember, there were some objective questions about McCabe. His wife had run as a Democrat for political office in Virginia. Um, Terry McAuliffe, who was extremely close to the Clintons, it's hard to get anybody closer to the Clintons than than McAuliffe, raised uh, a lot of money for her. And yes, he had recused himself from investigations in Virginia, but... um, to the extent that his wife was allied with um, the Clintons, the, the uh, Hillary Clinton being uh, Donald Trump's opponent, um, he might have a legitimate reason to be concerned that um, uh, that McCabe had some bias. So let's get into this question of the FBI being out to get um, President Trump, um, because the allegation is that, that, that they started being out to get him during the campaign. On July 5th, 2016, the director of the FBI, Jim Comey, stood up in a press conference and took the bark off of Hillary Clinton in a way that was really unprecedented and violated a whole bunch of DOJ rules. On October 27th, he released a letter publicly confirming that they were reopening the investigation into her, a letter that I think, that Nate Silver thinks, and a lot of people think, tipped the election. At the same time, they were investigating Donald Trump's campaign and not only never confirmed it, actively knocked down stories with the New York Times and other places about that investigation. Okay, let me, let me stop so you. So, so let me just say, the idea that the FBI was out to get him in the campaign is absurd. Right. Well, but let me just stop you on the, the FBI did not confirm the investigation. This was a counterintelligence investigation at the time. That is, by very definition, classified. There is no way, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that the FBI... FBI could have publicly confirmed an ongoing classified counterintelligence investigation. Am I correct? Uh, um, I don't know that it was just a, a counterintelligence investigation. It might have just That's what, equally been a cr- criminal investigation. But, but I would say they, they could. They, by the same, there were there were similar rules that prevent them confirming the investigation into Hillary Clinton the way that that Comey did. But so, that was a closed investigation at the time. Not when he reopened it on October 27th. He reopened it and confirmed right. that they were reopening it. That was right. that was the violation of rules. So, um, uh, I, I think you know that the idea that they were out to get him, when every way you look, they really put the, the finger on the scale, mainly the director himself, you know, uh, to help him. And I don't think that was their intention. I don't think 
Comey was trying to help Trump, but it was the effect of his intervention in the election. That's, I think, absurd. Well, well, um, Matt, let's, let's just – I want to bring this up to uh, uh, the present. I think it's not a coincidence that um, at the same time as more and more comes out um, in you know the Mueller investigation as we are learning – uh, about the kinds of people who he is putting before the grand jury or interviewing that he is, you know, trying to build a an obstruction case against, uh, you know, Trump, against Trump's associates, um, and that there is anxiety uh, uh, going on inside the White House and Republican circles. Um, and, and part of it is, and you know this uh, from having been around these kinds of investigations, that if you're on the outside, you don't really know exactly what the prosecutor knows. You get bits and pieces of it. Um, and there's this kind of chilling quote um, in a, uh, a Washington Post story from a couple of days ago, which I'm going to read here, which I think can kind of help people understand the kind of mindset, the kind of paranoia uh, that might be going on um, um, inside the White House and in Republican circles. Uh, here it goes. People who have appeared before Mueller's team say prosecutors have detailed accounts of events sometimes to the minute, and have surprised witnesses by showing them emails or documents they were unaware the team had or that their colleagues had written. One person said Mueller's team had asked about Trump's private comments around key events and how, the, how, how he explained decisions. And we've also heard uh, you know, people talk, in the White House talking about um, their concerns that some of their colleagues might, be, might even be wired up. So give us a sense of... of um, the kind of mindset um, that that uh, people in the White House might have, and how that might be fueling uh, the attacks on this investigation. So, you know, this kind of thing is is what you hear from uh, people at any organization that find itself under investigation. When you go in, either to the grand jury or when you go in and interviewed, uh, you find out that um, the investigators have been looking through your colleagues' emails, sometimes looking through your emails without your knowledge, because um, they've subpoenaed them from your email provider. Um, that they've, they've gotten testimony about meetings you were in, about things you said that you maybe don't even remember saying. And so it can be very jarring for all of these individuals. Um, and, and prosecutors like to do that. They like to, to kind of unsettle witnesses um, by, by showing them this type of, that, that they have this type of knowledge to let witnesses know you better tell the truth. Um, I, I know a lot about what happened in the, these series of meetings that you sat in, sat in on. And if you don't answer, um, you know, you're subject to potentially to a false statements charge. So I think you see the, that level of fear um, kind of ratcheting up inside the White House. Um, and you've seen it from the president for a long time. Um, and but then I, the what, do you make, what do you make of uh, the president saying yesterday, just as he was flying off to Davos, I'll talk to Mueller, I'll talk to him under oath. Well, the president can be very Jekyll and Hyde on this, right? I mean, look, he's come, he's come, he spun a full 360 degrees on just this question of talking to Mueller. Last year, he said, "Oh, of course, I'd be happy to talk to him." He said that in the Rose Garden over the summer. Um, earlier this month, he wasn't so sure. Said, "I don't know why we need it. You know, there's not. I don't even know why I need to." Um, and then yesterday, he's back to pledging, you know, full cooperation. Can't can't wait. So. He's not exactly been, you know, steady on this question. By the way, isn't um, this isn't this whole question of under oath or not kind of a canard? Because if he talks, I mean, if he talks to a federal, if he lies to a federal official, that's like uh, that's a violation. It, 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 it it's so stupid. It's a combination of this this crazy talking point that went around about Hillary Clinton not being under oath in her investigation, and I'm not sure who asked the question, but kind of you know, an uninformed question. The FBI doesn't swear people under oath. I'm not even sure 
FBI officials have the authority, FBI agents have the authority to ha make someone swear uh, an oath. Um, you're, you know, you're under oath if you're before a court or before Congress or something. Um, but yes, the, 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 the practical impact is the same. You're subject to a false statements charge versus a perjury charge if you're under oath before a court. But it's the same practical purposes. You lie to an agent, you go to jail. Can we talk about this, uh, this Nunes memo, this House Intelligence uh, Committee memo, which is gotten a lot of airtime this week, and I think uh, the, the premise of it uh, is uh, that the, um, the, the, the wiretap application, the, national the application for a national security wiretap was based solely on the infamous um, dossier, um, Christopher, Christopher Steele, the former British uh, spy who eventually brought it to the FBI. It's uh, full of salacious uh, and unverified information. Um, and Republicans are saying that that is really the entire basis for this uh, application, and they're going to release it, um, and people are going to be shocked uh, by the abuses of, of the FBI. Um, so first of all, um, just give us your reaction to that, and um, is is uh, what are we missing here? So I really think what Devin Nunes is doing kind of, you know, has crossed the line from kind of typical partisanship and even hard-edged partisanship, and has really moved into the realm of just kind of one of the most dishonorable acts I've seen from a committee chairman. Um, look, he won't share this memo he's written with the FBI or the Justice Department, who presumably would be able to, who presumably would want to know if there was any wrongdoing that it found. He won't share it with the Republican um, uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who's asked to see a copy. And the reason that's important is, so the, the memo is drawn from this underlying classified information that the Intelligence Committee has gotten, uh, has either um, gotten copies of, or in some cases have not gotten copies of, but have been able to view. Um, and so Nunes has written a memo um, uh, apparently making this cl you know, claim that the FISA warrant uh, uh, against Carter Page was um, obtained illegally in some fashion. Um, other people who've looked at all the information, the Republican Justice Department, led by Pete, uh, Pete Sessions, Rod Rosenstein, says there was no wrongdoing. Adam Jeff Schiff Sessions. No, Jeff Sessions, sorry. <laughs> Jeff Pete Sessions is a congressman. Jeff Sessions, Rod Rosenstein, um, the, the Rep Democratic ranking member, Adam Schiff, uh, all say that if you look at all the underlying information, it doesn't show any wrongdoing. But the problem with what Nunes is doing, if his memo is released publicly, the people who can rebut the points that uh, are made in the memo won't be able to do so because the underlying information is classified. But let's um, can I uh, uh, yeah. let's dissect this a little bit because um, I get your point that this is clearly a, uh, a skewed uh, version of what the evidence shows, and um, uh, it's by its nature uh, selective. But also, this kind of underscores. How little we still know. Here we are, you know, a year and a half later uh, or more about what the basis for the FISA warrant against Carter Page was, whether anything came of it. Um, he hasn't been charged with any crime. Did the FISA uh, uh, wiretapping of, of uh, Page's communications continue? Did they get anything from it? Did it lead anywhere? Um, and if not, you know, what, uh, what, what triggered it in the first place? What was the mix? It may have not have been solely based 
on the um, on the Steele memo, but was it partly based on that? Was it included in the FISA warrant application? We don't really know the answers to any of those questions, do we? So uh, this reminds me of conversations we used to have, Mike, when I worked at the Justice Department, and I would say, yeah, you're damn right you don't know, and you're not supposed to know. Um, the underlying information is classified. Now, there's a process here the Justice Department goes through internally, mm-hmm. and it's all signed off by a judge. And so we don't know all that information because presumably, and the Department of Justice in this letter they sent to Devin Nunes yesterday kind of allude to some of this, um, if we knew that information, if we knew all the things that went into this FISA uh, application, it would reveal intelligence sources and methods. It might compromise information given to us by a foreign government. There's an allusion to that in the uh, but but but, but yeah, you know, Matt, all that's true. But you know, it is also the case that a few years back, in the wake of the warrantless wiretapping scandal, in the wake of the Snowden revelations, one of the things that you know we were all talking about is that. The, the FISA judges just rubber stamped these applications that, you know, uh, like there was like never a FISA warrant that wasn't approved. Uh, may, may not have been never, but almost never. And so, you know, shouldn't we be a little skeptical and open minded to the possibility that this particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, wiretap application, um, you know, was that not every uh, T was crossed and every I was dotted? So let's let's uh, I'm going to I'm going to say yes to that and then have a but at the end. The yes is let's say we grant that we should be a little little skeptical. The DOJ actually had a fairly I think good solution in their letter. They proposed that Nunez give his memo, give his allegations of wrongdoing to the Justice Department's Inspector General, who's a pretty respected guy, and let him investigate. And if there's anything, he's someone that has access to classified information. If there was any wrongdoing, he could find it. That's a fairly good way out of it. But the other thing I'd say is. We shouldn't give Devin Nunes the benefit of the doubt on this question. You know why? Because he made similar allegations about unmasking a year ago, and they all turned out to be completely unfounded. At some point, when someone has shown himself to be such a bad faith actor, you don't stop. You you stop saying, "Well, he's just raising questions that ought to be investigated." You say, "You know what? We've seen this before from you. We're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt this time." By the way, we I think we sort of glided over. Uh, something really interesting um, and I think important this week, which was that the the uh, official of the Justice Department, uh, Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs, Stephen Boyd, who wrote this letter uh, to the committee uh, saying that it would be, ex- I think the quote was, extraordinarily reckless to release the memo because it draws on s- so much classified information. I mean, this is, this guy, Boyd, uh, uh, worked for uh, Jeff Sessions in the Senate. He's obviously a close advisor to Jeff Sessions now. And, you know, you got to think that the White House um, would actually want this memo out there because it'll they think it'll help the president. So that kind of, um, you know, I think is going to is going to create some tensions between more tensions between the Justice Department and, and the White House. But I, I just want to just come back to you know the point I was trying to make before, which is that, you know, all that kind of still begs the question of what the there there is. Correct. I mean. You know, the fact that, I mean, you know, Page hasn't been charged with any crimes. He's been interviewed by the FBI, presumably, presumably if they had caught him saying something on intercepts that he uh, contradicted during his interview, he would have been subject to uh, some kind of false statements charge. This was one of the pillars, it appears from everything we know, of the uh, collusion allegation and investigation to begin with. 
And at well, some I'm gonna, point, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push some, back here on what you're yeah, saying, Mike, because. Yeah. You know, th- these are complex investigations. Investigators right. go down lots of avenues, and right. not all of them pan out. So right. let's say this one didn't pan out. Uh, it, it, so well, what? It, well, what do you mean? Well, I I think, for one thing, the public deserves to know that. Would you agree, Well, at what Matt? point? But what, no, what point Matt, do you, we will, you we agree? will at the end. Yeah, well, well, at the end of the investigation. Look, at the end of the investigation, yeah. when Bob Mueller wraps up his investigation, there'll be certain people who are charged and certain people who aren't. Right. And if Carter Page isn't charged then, we'll know that they didn't find enough evidence to charge him. Right, right. Uh, but look, uh, all I'm saying is that there are, you know, as I said before, there are legitimate questions that we have not resolved. And that, um, you know, more than a year into the Trump presidency now, um, I think it's not unreasonable that the president's allies may want to say, hey, you know, it's time to, uh, uh, given the cloud that this has cast over the White House, and I'm not defending the White House for a moment here, but I'm just saying that there's a reasonable argument to be made that at some point um, uh, the public deserves some answers. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I mean, and, you know, the best way for the, the White House to ease this along would be for the president to sit down and do his interview. Um, and let's uh, uh, let's uh, dissect that a little bit. Um, so they're looking at obstruction, and this is a very internal DOJ question, which is why we're having you on uh, as a former DOJ guy. But um, the guy in charge of the um, uh, Mueller investigation is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Stein. 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 Okay. Stein. okay. I was going to say, this is going to be the podcast where, yeah. where we you know right. make sure people understand how these names are pronounced. We're getting into the yeah. FBI agents who are exchanging text messages. Messages, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, we'll Peter get to that Strzok. Tonight. Okay. We're going to get these right. It's Rod Rosenstein. The problem Rod is, Rosen- the problem yeah. is, Isikoff and I were hanging out with Rod Rosenstein back in the early 90s when he worked for Ken Starr. Right. And we knew how to pronounce his name. But since then, all these people have been getting it wrong. And so I blame them. We've been it's poisoned. Like, and we've been, it's an infected us. It's infected Rosen, us. All right. Back all to right. your, back to Rosenstein. As long as you never say Bob Mueller. I <laughs> oh, I hate that. I hate that. All right. So Rosenstein's in charge of the Mueller, inve- oh, sorry, the Mueller <laughs> investigation. Um, and... Um, so we know that Mueller interviewed Sessions, we learned that just in the last few days, the attorney general, about the firing of Comey. So Sessions is a fact witness in the um, obstruction investigation. But and he's even recused, more so, and he's, and he's recused, but even more so, Rosenstein played a critical role in the firing of Mueller. He's the guy who drafted the memo that the White House used to cite as the basis for the firing of Mueller. Uh, uh, Rosenstein had conversations directly with the president on it. How can a key fact witness in the Mueller investigation be the same guy at DOJ who's in charge of the Mueller investigation? Um, I don't think there's um, any really good explanation for this, to be honest. Um, there was a great lawfare pl- post um, a couple of weeks ago that you know analyzed three scenarios and basically decided that none of them made sense. I think that's right. The only thing I can come up with, because look, he's obviously, uh, it, there's been one report that he's even been interviewed. He wrote the memo. He met with the president about firing Comey the day before the president took that action. Um, he saw an early draft of the letter the president wrote that the mentioned so-called, uh, the so-called bed Russia. minister, the bed minister letter, which, That's right. which references Russia apparently in the first sentence. He, he read that. that. 
That's right. So um, he is any he is by any stretch of the imagination someone that Mueller would at least see as a witness. Um, I don't know how he can stay in charge of this case. The only thing I can figure is that they are either fudging the rules somehow, or they have figured out a way to, to for Rod to grant himself a waiver, or to um, talk to the next person in the chain of command. Um, the, um, the the associate attorney general Rachel Brand and ask her to issue a waiver for him. I think but wait, why would why would it. why would Mueller? Well, first of all, would would Mueller have any say, or is this no. so? This no. is entirely he's not, he's not in the chain of command for Rod. Um, now he might have an opinion on it, but it wouldn't be binding in any way. What? So what would the argument be? How would they justify? I mean, because right, I mean, Sessions went by the book when it came to recusing himself. Uh, from the investigation. He went to the ethics, you know, lawyers of the Justice Department. They told him he had to recuse, and he did. The only thing I can think of is that, um, uh, first of all, Rod would have had to get some kind of assurance from Mueller that uh, you know, he, he, they did an interview, explained to him what he knew, and he's gotten assurance that you're a witness, not a subject. That's the first thing. If Rod is ever a subject to this investigation on some conspiracy to obstruct justice investigation, then he obviously has to be recused. So that's the first thing. And then the other, only other thing I can imagine is that they then, you know, that, that Rod made some kind of judgment that um, his recusal from this case would be damaging to the Justice Department. It would throw it to Rachel Brand, um, the number three official at DOJ, who has no criminal experience. No, you know, no, she's a very accomplished lawyer, but not a, I don't think ever been a prosecutor, has no criminal experience. Um, and it would put someone in the line of fire who maybe isn't in as strong a position to stand up to the president in the event he ever tries to fire his way through the department to get rid of Bob Mueller. And so given these really tricky political currents, they've come up with some kind of waiver situation where they can waive the conflict of interest, um, you know, uh, in the interest of justice. Or why that, that's the only thing I can come up with, because there's not a good explanation otherwise. Why aren't the Democrats raising holy hell about this? Um, it, I don't think they really know who ought to be in charge of the investigation. I, I think a lot of Democrats have, have had this cockamamie idea that Jeff Sessions ought to stick around because if you get rid of Sessions, the next attorney general won't be recused and there'll be someone that can, um, that can fire Mueller or you know, curtail the investigation through some other way, which I, I think is bananas. If you have a chance to get rid of Jeff Sessions, get rid of Jeff Sessions. Um, so I think Democrats haven't really been sure what to say, and they're also not sure you know, it makes any difference. Um, whether Rod's recused or not. Look, I think it would be very hard for Rod or whoever else, if Bob Mueller ever comes back and wants to take an investigative step, he's not like, look, Bob Mueller's not Ken Starr. He's not going to do it because he's on, you know, he's really going off after something crazy. He's, he's, a, he's a, a serious, you know, just the facts kind of guy. I think it would be very hard for Rod or anyone else supervising him to say no. I think the real uh, uh, question is going to be if Rod stays where he is, is Mueller prepares a report for the deputy attorney general. That What happens to that report is entirely in the discretion of Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general. Um, whether he makes it public or forwards it to Congress, um, only he, as I understand it, can make the call. Now, Presumably, if the Democrats get back control of the House in November, they can demand to see a copy. They can, they can subpoena, subpoena Mueller. They can subpoena Mueller. They can subpoena the report. But um, uh, until we get to that point, um, it's really uh, up to Rosenstein. Stein. Yeah, Stein! That, uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it this time. That's right. I think there's one other potential scenario. Um, 
you know, Mueller could follow the the Watergate precedent. Remember then, Alan Jaworski had, wrote a grand jury report. Um, uh, there was an indictment of a number of Nixon administration officials for obstruction of justice. Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator, and I and eventually the judge at the at the special counsel's request, the judge transmitted that report to Congress. I, I think. I think Mueller would probably still have to get Rosenstein's permission to even ask the judge to do that, but that's one other precedent. It was Leon Jaworski, by the way, not Alan. Ah, what did I say? You said Alan. Um, ah, so ah, uh, we're now, even. Now here. you're correcting me. Yes, yeah, we're even. Exactly. Hey, let's uh, talk a little bit about these text messages, which, by the way, have just been found. The missing text messages, which just the other day. Uh, President Trump was comparing to the, uh, to the 18 and 18 and a half minute gap. Speaking of Watergate. Uh, 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 during Watergate, uh, they've apparently been recovered by the inspector general. Now they do. And, and look, some of this, clearly some of the uh, uh, spinning on this was overblown. The suggestion about that there was a secret society of FBI agents meeting in, uh, uh, to get rid of Trump, which I, I actually got quite excited about. I thought like, wow, um, some, you know, the Illuminati, <laughs> <laughs> his secret cabal uh, was in session. But now it, it appears that was a joke. But um, if you read the ones that have been made public, they clearly do seem to show some biases by uh, this agent, Peter Strzok, who was in charge of the um, uh, of the investigation, and Lisa Page, uh, his, um, his paramour. Paramour. His paramour. Could, could be um, how, um, uh, how disturbing uh, are the text messages that we've seen so far. So let me got, let you guys in on a little secret. Um, when FBI agents are investigating people, they usually think those people are guilty of sin. Doesn't mean they are. Doesn't mean they ever find evidence. Doesn't mean it affects how they, affects how they um, uh, handle the case. So obviously sometimes it does. But they usually think the people they're investigating are guilty. Um, and I think you're seeing you saw some of that bleed over in this case where they think Trump is, you know, at least not a very you know, decent person and not someone that ought to be the president of the United States. Um, I, the other thing is, look, they're obviously, you know, it's okay for FBI agents ha- to have political opinions, which you saw come up in this case. They also didn't like Eric Holder, um, didn't think much of Loretta Lynch, it seems, didn't think much of Bernie Sanders, of a whole bunch of people. Um, what matters is whether it, it impacts ha- their decision-making um, in the case and whether they take any steps that are inappropriate. Well, there hasn't been evidence of that yet, but okay, I but think Matt, once it- to get struck off the case. Right, that's, that's what I say. Once appearing. it becomes public, then you've got to deal yeah, with a perception got, problem. Yeah. And, that, and, that's what, and that's what Mueller did. As soon as it came to Mueller, um, I mean, he didn't waste time, I don't think, trying to find out whether Strzok had acted inappropriately. This was enough. Um, in a case of this nature, especially when there's such a spotlight on what you're doing, he had no choice but to, to move him off I the mean, case. the irony is that, you know, Mike and I have covered the FBI for, you know, 25 years or whatever. And, you know, it is a right-leaning organization. I mean, the, you know, the brick agents tend to be conservative. And it was not – it was really like a year ago or something that we were talking about the anti-Clinton cabal inside the FBI. So the notion that, you know, there are secret societies plotting against Donald Trump because they've got liberal biases is a little bit silly. Um, yeah, although, yep. you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a changed organization. I, I remember being at a, uh, a dinner with a bunch of FBI agents uh, uh, during the campaign uh, and, um, and, and, and joking to them, hey, you guys are all, uh, you know, you're all, you're all Trump 
Trump uh, supporters, right? And um, and and a number of them got quite indignant uh, at uh, at that suggestion. So I think um, you know that is the traditional view of uh, the FBI as a right-leaning organization. Um, but I think it's um, it's much more diverse these days, uh, and um, you know quite a few. Uh, Different political perspectives, but um, Mike, uh, Mike, Mike clearly is afraid of offending some sources here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll out all of them. Hey, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we got, uh, we got. I think we're. Um, uh, you are not the first guest on uh, Skullduggery, and um, I wanted to ask you about a exchange we had uh, last week uh, with our uh, our guest from last week, which was Daniel Ellsberg, the famed Pentagon Papers whistleblower. We were talking to him about. Um, uh, the movie The Post and the role of the press, uh, Nixon's attacks on the press in, in, in light of Donald Trump's attacks on the press. You mentioned uh, the, all the reasons to get rid of Jeff Sessions, who has uh, said he's going to vigorously uh, pursue leak cases. But I want to ask you, since you <laughs> served in the Obama Justice Department, uh, I, want you, I want you to listen to an exchange uh, that we had with Ellsberg um, uh, last week and uh, get your uh, thoughts. One of the hallmarks of Trump's presidency is his attacks on the press. He attacks, you know, news organizations and individual reporters on a regular basis. He's talking about loosening the libel laws. Yeah. How much does that remind you of, of Richard Nixon? And do you think um, he's as dangerous as Nixon in terms of, you know, the way he goes after, after the press and tries to, to delegitimize uh, legitimate reporting? I think he's going to build on the terrible precedent of Barack Obama, who prosecuted three times as many people altogether as all presidents put together before him. So uh, what do you make of Ellsberg comparing the Justice Department you served under to uh, Richard Nixon and Donald Trump? So I don't think it's entirely fair. Um, uh, look, I think our, our record on, on this is, you know, some of the criticism was legitimate. Some of it wasn't. Um, I think a lot of the, the leak cases we brought, you know, were, were cases where people had actually, you know, there was no whistleblowing claim that you could possibly make. People that leak classified information just because, um, you know, for, for no good reason. Now, others, like Thomas Drake, for example, I think were cases that shouldn't have been brought. Um, that one ultimately fell apart. Um, Did you say uh, that, by but, the way, um, uh, Matt, uh, at the time internally? Because, like, one of, the, one of the jobs of the head of public affairs of the Justice Department is... I think in part to be an advocate for the press, um, as well as obviously to be a spokesman and advocate for the administration. So what was your posture internally at the Justice Department when all this was happening? So I, I didn't with the Drake case. The Drake one is the only one I think that we brought that was really a, a kind of a case that shouldn't have been brought. I don't think I had a full understanding of, of the facts of it. And, and to be honest, I wasn't consulted on whether we should bring it or not. To, that That's not something that, that the litigating divisions will always do. They'll they consult with you on whether to subpoena reporters or not. Um, but the other ones I, I thought were legitimate. John Kirikayo, for example, leaked the identities of CIA operatives for, for no good reason at all. That's something that the government shouldn't tolerate. Um, now, uh, I do think the you know the subpoena um, uh, against Jim Risen, which I'll admit I recommended that be be approved, um, was a mistake in retrospect. I don't think anyone in the department ever anticipated that he would testify. It was really leverage against the defendant to try to get him to to plead guilty, but you know ended up playing out in a really damaging way. But I think what we found is that the, there's this massive check on the department's power. 
um, uh, against uh, reporters, and that is the free press. And you saw this in 2013 when um, the Ryzen subpoena was was really you know, progressing in the courts, the, the, the subpoenas of AP reporters' records came out, the a separate case of a Fox News reporter um, w- was unearthed. Um, the department took a lot of heat, and, and in, I think in the Rosen, in this Fox News case, really rightly so, and backed down and revised the rules to make it tougher to subpoena reporters. And um, I, you, you didn't see as many leak cases brought in the second, in the second Obama term as you did in the first. So. There was a bit of a corrective, I think, um, uh, to, to the you know really aggressive actions. Even though I think most of them were appropriate um, and, and happened for a lot of reasons. Technology's changed; it's easier to make leak cases than it used to be. Um, there was a little bit of a corrective towards the end of the, the term. Well, that I think. And Mike, I, Mike, I, what, Mike one, one last thing. I remember Mike, Mike Isakoff early on telling me, me uh, about some of these leak cases. That's you. Yeah. Um, you're going to regret bringing these. These have a way, these investigations have a way of, of ending up places that you don't know, that you don't expect, um, jamming people um, you don't expect to be jammed. Um, and I remember when Obama's favorite general, Jim Cartwright, was pleading guilty to a false statements charge late in the second term. I remember thinking, eh, Mike was right. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, I think I that may a, be the yeah. first time I've ever heard Matt Miller say that, so I'm going to... And, and we're I'm on tape. I'm going to edit that part out. Right, no, right, no, no, we, we've, part out. we've got this on tape. We're going to play this. I think we're going to put that in our beginning of uh, Skullduggery <laughs> now, our routine. And, yeah. uh, yeah. the, uh, and I have to say... Um, the the case that you just cited, Cartwright, um, you know, has some personal resonance for me. Yeah. Uh, because you were because right in the middle. Of I it. was right in the middle of that, and um, probably the only time in my life that I was hoping that for for a uh, presidential pardon, um, <laughs> and it happened. And yeah. Cartwright. Not for yourself. So not no you, you no. Did not I get pardoned. That, that right. I. <laughs> I would not get pardoned. Even if I needed to be, I would not get pardoned, I'm sure. You'd serve your um, time. But good of you to acknowledge what you just acknowledged. And I will acknowledge that at the end, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Obama Justice Department, I know you had a lot to do with this, um, really started a, a useful dialogue uh, with the media. It uh, changed uh, those guidelines in significant ways. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, we can work together sometimes. Uh, Matt Miller, thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thanks. We'll be back next Friday with another new episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 